Hello, everyone, and welcome to Authors Unbound, a podcast connecting passionate readers with passionate writers. I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief of Unbound Edition Press. How are you today, Peter? I'm doing well. It's uh, It definitely is uh, wintry here, but I got a chance to read a lot this weekend, which was always fun, including rereading some books that are in the pipeline at Unbound Edition. It's pretty exciting. You know, I want to tell the world everything that's coming all at once, but we have to do it book at the time. There are now 29 books in the pipeline, and it's kind of unbelievable with with more to come. But the book we're going to talk about today is coming in spring of 2023, and it's really wonderful to be working on this book in the winter as it'll bring us such warmth. I'm really thankful for poets like Nicole Robinson who don't shy away from how tough things can be sometimes, and and she brings beauty to that toughness. It makes it tolerable and survivable, I think. It's a book in which that warmth and that tenderness is hard won. That phrase is going to stay with me, a hard won tenderness. It's really easy to become calloused in this world. And sometimes we have to work to stay tender or to recover what is tender uh, inside of us. It's so much easier to let everything kind of blister over and then callous. But Nicole doesn't do that. She's not afraid to sort of stare at the wounded place and see the beauty in that. That's really true. And whatever the subject matter of her poems is, there's also the formal life of the poem itself. They seem to be far from just representing subject matter, which of course they do. They're moving through it passionately, intelligently, and surprisingly. One of my favorite things about our conversation with Nicole is literally her voice, the way she reads her poems are is just so round and rich and resonant and maybe we should do that one day soon just have authors unbound reading instead of these discussions and we could have nicole back to read more poems from without a field guide that would be a lot of fun you're right she's a wonderful reader and it's probably no coincidence that she works in this new field called narrative medicine which she's working with patients and families and care providers in the palliative care unit at Akron's Children's Hospital and getting the stories out, which is something really important in that situation. You know, we we think of the coasts as our literary centers, right? Whether it's New York or Boston or San Francisco, but it seems to me so much of our great literature has come from the Midwest, has come from these kind of unexpected places. And It always cheers me that maybe the human spirit, maybe the voice comes from the places that we don't expect. And that always makes me feel like there's little sparkles of genius hidden almost anywhere if we just listen for them. What do you think that's about? Why do some of these remarkable voices come out of unexpected places? Why do we have such a rich American literary heritage out of places like Ohio? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I mean, of course, I'm thinking of Hart Crane and James yeah. Wright and all Me these too. wonderful poets came through Ohio. You know, it's, I don't know. I think it's my impression that great poetry can take flower anywhere, but that it's it's often a very long and unexpected process of growth. And this book of Nicole's is one that she's been working on for several years now. 
I just have to have this faith, and I think as editors and publishers, we have to have this faith that good work will out wherever it is, good work will out. And there are places that we're accustomed to looking for it, probably for good reason, uh, but it's it's all around. Yeah, the next great collection of poetry may just be maybe hidden in plain sight in the middle of the country. We're going to keep looking for them and publishing them and talking about them, including with Nicole Robinson and Without a Field Guide today on Authors Unbound. asked me what it was like to start this press and it was sort of a fever dream. I mean, A, who starts a literary press in the age of quote unquote content and B, who does it in the middle of a pandemic? But we did both and somehow we've got the wind under our wings, which is maybe one of the themes that we'll talk about today are birds and wings and how things take from the marshes to the skies and if they stay afloat. That is such a good description of some of the metaphorical life in the book we're about to talk about, Without a Field Guide by Nicole Robinson. This is a book of poetry that I'm just so excited about. It has such emotional force and formal subtlety and it really knocks my socks off and it has birds and even moments of flipping the bird i think as it pushes back and pushes away from the things that aren't working in life and nature and all of that we're so excited that nicole robinson is here with us today on authors unbound and also to be publishing without a field guide coming out in spring of 2023 the book is in design right now and looking beautiful nicole you've not seen it yet but we've gotten a peek at it and it's a real dang book it's just about ready <laughs> it's exciting i'm really thrilled to be here with both of you today thanks for joining us and welcome how's life been treating you it's been pretty good um, here in Northeast Ohio. We're shifting into winter, it's gray skies, but also some beautiful silence that comes with that. And also beautiful breaks. I'm heading down to Florida tomorrow to be with my perfect nephews and kind of walk along the coast. That's awesome. Where are you headed in Florida? Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Florida, which I, I'm going to be honest, when my when my sister-in-law moved from Charleston to Jacksonville, I thought, what's there? And it reminds me a lot of Cleveland in the 90s, <laughs> but it has these beautiful parks and I love to surf. Uh, they have a state park with beautiful sands and no hotels built along the coast. So, And it's home to that great raucous poet, Fred Durst. <laughs> Of Limp Biscuit. Ah, I did not know that. Of Limp Biscuit. Jacksonville's native son. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it's actually a of, really great of, city. I love it a lot. It is a great city. Among all of the cultural exports from Florida, Fred Durst is probably <laughs> in the top. And we thank him for his service to the word and humanity. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about words and humanity and the poems and without a field guide, the easy place to begin here in this complex and nuanced and subtle book for me is the title. And I just keep asking myself, is the field guide the person or is the field guide the text? And I keep thinking about that title being read both ways. 
and that in writing this collection of poems that you become the field guide for the reader and that the collection of poems becomes the field guide that hasn't existed for the poet throughout life. And I'm just really interested in the intersection of the human and the text that is contained in that brilliant title. Thank you. I think the book went through a lot of different titles. And there's a poem in here without a field guide that I wrote in a moment where I really felt, yeah, there wasn't much of a field guide. And there's a certain place where one kind of has to lean into that, right? Lean into the unknown and follow. So I I really love how you say it becomes a sort of field guide as the book progresses. That process speaks to something that I admire so much about this book is it really is a book about healing, about somebody who has found her way from very traumatic childhood and teenage years, it include being a survivor of sexual abuse, into her sense of herself in the world. There's a great warmth to it in that this person without a field guide is finding a way. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. You know, I think for me, at least, poetry sort of allows me to enter a story where the narrative feels kind of too muddy or too unclear to really decipher it. And so instead, I can enter and sort of trust language and breath and music and let that unfold the story. But in doing so, the poems really came out in an unorganized way. I mean, there were many more poems. This book took a long time. And I really had to piece things together to let it unfold, I guess. Unorganized is not disorganized, though. Unorganized is the process of discovering, isn't it? Right. And it's that act of discovery that I love so much. You know, even though many of these poems are are personal and come from that autobiographical place in a way, it's it's that act of discovery that is really powerful, playing with form and, and music, and even when the poems themselves wanted to resist some of the things I was trying to do. And I don't know if that makes sense, but please feel free to... It makes perfect sense. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. And it also just makes a wonderful description of an artistic process. The engagement in these poems with the natural world, with the non-human creatures, is also a kind of foray into the unknown, a discovery. And the adventure of the poem and the adventure of the woods or the creek bed uh, or the marsh become consubstantial as these poems move from beginning to end. I was wondering if you could read one of the Great Blue Heron poems, either one of them. Sure, sure. Body of the Great Blue Heron. Body of the Great Blue Heron, mostly gray, body of mourning. Body to hold the torrent of water in still land. Body with gravity and flight. And who doesn't love a contradiction? Body of neck, length of a snake, body with a dagger for a bill and barrel for torso. What do we hold in our chests? Blood and an exhale we can't let go. Memory and muscle, a whole body of breath. Heron's got a body of hollow bones. What lives inside that space? Is that where the soul lives? In whatever cavity it can find? Is that our soul when we're alone that thuds in our chest against the breastbone? Heron's body, a feather and fringed claw, is a body beside a colony of bodies who prefers to forage alone. Body of fresh water, body of salt, 
body with legs disappearing underwater. The heron will defend its feeding territory, throw its wings open, tilt its head back, point its bill towards sky, and stretch itself as large as it can, a body of belief. It will lift with one flap of its wings, carry its body through the body of sky. <laughs> you read so beautifully, Nick. I mean, the way you embody these words. I have not given a reading in a very, very long time. And I typically only read these poems myself. And so it's nice to read it to you, too. Yeah. Wow. The music and the breath that you were speaking of just a moment ago is so evident in your voice as you read that poem. It's one of my favorite poems in, in the collection, so I'm really glad to know that you love it as well. And I think it's great to love your own work. The work is an act of love anyway. Nobody is writing poetry for money. <laughs> <laughs> That's <true. laughs> Poetry is not just non-commercial, it's anti-commercial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely and then I love I love the repetition of body in it and even just the yeah. word body, right? I, I used to I was a dancer, not a very good one, a modern dancer. Um I wasn't great at it, but I, I taught dance. And I think for me a lot of times language and the embodiment of language reminds me a lot of modern dance in, in some capacities. That, you know, reminds me of that you are somebody whose day job is enmeshed with poetry and with storytelling. When I first met you, Nick, you were working at Kent State in the Poet Wick Poetry Center. And now you, you've gotten a degree in narrative medicine and are thriving as a narrative medicine practitioner. And I was wondering if you could tell us what what is that job like and and how does poetry intersect with it so my work in narrative medicine really was a, a sort of deepening of the career that I began at the Wick Poetry Center. I had the privilege to work there for almost 10 years, and I taught courses where I trained graduate students to teach creative writing throughout the community, so prisons, hospitals, shelters, many places. Uh, and and in doing that, I really fell in love with the work, particularly at the hospitals. And plenty of people thought I was a little mad for leaving such a wonderful job at the Poetry Center, but I knew that there were aspects that I wanted to go a little deeper into. So narrative medicine felt like the, the right kind of leap for me. If you're listening and don't know what narrative medicine is, most people don't. To put it really simply, narrative medicine uses the literary arts to help patients, families, and providers tell and listen to story. So if we think from the provider's standpoint, you know, listening to people in moments that are tender and vulnerable, may involve pain, uncertainty, uh, the narrative can often come out quite fragmented. For example, I hurt my back earlier this year, and I remember being in a provider's office, and the narrative probably went something like, well, two days ago I did this and it felt this way, but oh, two weeks prior I was actually going about this. And did I mention that yesterday? And we're kind of leaping a lot, right? And so by training providers to read closely, 
which that's not necessarily a given in their training, but really trying to train providers to read closely then allows for them to be able to follow the narrative of patients a little better. So reading closely translates into listening closely. And then on the patient side, I read and write with patients and families as well, predominantly in palliative care and in behavioral health. That really allows folks to find a voice, gain that sense of control with their own kind of experiences that they are having. Um, so it's really utilizing that literary arts from a, from a healing side of things. And we know from research of Pennebaker that writing you know, has these abilities to help with health outcomes, help with depressive symptoms. And You just helped me enormously. I mean, I... <laughs> I think I've understood for a long time that, you know, the stories we tell ourselves can impact our health, right? And that the ways in which we might write or rewrite our traumas or our diseases can absolutely impact our relationship to them. But just in listening, and I say that as someone who carries several chronic illnesses, that's just been my path through life from very early. But you just helped me realize that the word chronic actually contains hope. I've always thought of it as a burden, that there's this unending state of disease. But I've only ever focused on the disease, not on the unending. The very fact that it is chronic means that there is a next step, there's a next stage, that it's ongoing. And yes, the body and the disease have to live together. And one day it may feel like, one is winning and the next day it may feel like the other is winning. But for something to be chronic is actually to say there's going to be a continuation. And I've never once had that thought. I'm 56 years old and I got type 1 diabetes when I was five and I've never once thought that there was something hopeful about it being chronic. And so just to even find a single moment of reframing shows me some of the power of what you're doing in your quote unquote real life, if you consider poetry to not be real. <laughs> but what powerful work, Nick. Thanks for sharing with me and with listeners what narrative medicine can do. Yeah, thank you. I really consider the work really immense privilege as it is to be able to sit with folks in moments that, you know, whether it is a child who knows that end of life will be happening or a parent who is really processing a lot and, you know, they have the psychologist on the one side, but sometimes that's your first line, right? The story is difficult to tell and see where that kind of leads things. So yeah, it's a, it's a privilege for sure. I love the work. One of the things I, I noticed in the poems is that often there are bodies, maybe the body of a bird, maybe the body of a possum, maybe the human body. And at the moment of failure, at the moment of destruction, at the moment of death, there's also a teeming of life, of the life that continues in the person who has observed something being injured or dying, the life that consumes a decaying body. And there seems to be sort of a transition state that promises some type of unending, 
some type of continuation. And even if that transition is violent, right? Even if that transition is unpleasant, you don't ever seem to just settle in with resignation to death. And I just wonder if that informs your narrative medicine or if that comes from your narrative medicine or if these are just in kind of perpetual dialogue for you. I really feel like it's a perpetual dialogue. I want to listen. I want to listen closely always, whether I'm listening to the music and poetry or listening to the world around me, uh, the people, the the plants, the cigarette butt on the sidewalk. You know? Writing is is very similar to, to the work that I do, that I show up without expectation or agenda and I let it unfold as it will unfold. I think so often we think of writing as speaking, but you're just making me understand that writing is listening, especially with poetry. There's a kind of dialogue that's happening throughout this book, but I, I wanted to ask if you would read the first poem in the book, Straddling Centuries, in which as a teenager telling herself something very important, I was wondering if you'd read that. Absolutely. Straddling Centuries. I only lived in the 20th century for 20 years, but between the mixtapes and dial-up, the girl I was got stuck in a hush on her bed, all bone sore from the world's heat, its reactionary blisters. She's alone and unable to fade, too wise to leave, too sad to stay. She tried to get off what she couldn't get back, her small body like a thin summer dress. I'd call to her if I could, from cell towers through phone lines, tell her, leave home and not the body you'll need. Wow. Such courage in that poem. Such a lyric. Well, while we have you reading poems, Nick, could you all you into reading one more? I mean, I'm struck by the way that I've just, we just asked you to read the first poem, the way that the final poem on the book, Tender, comma, How, is such a appropriate ending to the book. And it is a poem that's addressed to somebody too. So it's, it seems to me part of a back and forth, a kind of reciprocal dialogue. Anyhow, those are just some thoughts about it. I'd really love to hear the poem. I, I will just say that this is one of those poems where the title leaps right into that, that first line. So, okay. Tender, how on my way to Kentucky, a herd of deer can't decide which way to move in the cropped cornfields statues under sky, like you in your bleak burrow with a photo of the Ohio River, how the waves stand on top of themselves to remind us nothing is always moving. Tenderness, how she comes to you, chimes from your chest a song. Before you let her inside the alley of you, she whispered, this is how we come into the world, vulnerable and small. She came to the dog that broke her back and had to relearn to walk with a slight tail wag. She came to the woman after suicide failed and the bruise of the noose faded to yellow. Tender. How we notice the white curtains behind us, swollen streak of sun that cuts through and wonder how anyone can blame anything for living the only way it knows how. I can't wait for people to read these poems oh, and to be able to have them and hold them and feel seen and safe 
with them. You're expressing things that a lot of people really struggle to know how to express about their own lives or experiences or bodies. And it's part of what's really powerful about the collection to the point of where we began part of why it ends up feeling like this becomes the field guide for those who might feel lost. Yeah. I want to turn to our, our Proust questionnaire. Yeah. We're going to play a parlor game now. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Here it comes. Marcel Proust did not invent this parlor game though he perfected it and so we just we're asking everybody a question or two and i i'd like to kick off given some of your subject matter how would you most like to be remembered as an author as a writer that listened that listens closely to the music and trusts that listens to the world around her i know that seems like a simple answer and kind of bringing up what we've already talked about but i do think that's the case and hopefully sometimes i'm able to to listen and get something clear or something a bit beautiful, even in the, in the painful moments. You sure do. Yeah, you certainly do. Or as just, maybe I just want to be remembered as someone that had fun on the page too, right? Like, I mean, even though some of these poems are difficult, right? I think of this, one of the poems in the book, Where the Goldfinch. It's a really hard poem to write. The, it was very tender. The emotional subject of it was heavy. And so it actually started out, are you ready, as a single sentence sonnet. And I wanted it to be a grammatically correct single sentence sonnet. And then when I got it after years, I mean, I spent years on this one poem. And then I learned that I needed some revision, right? (laughs) And a couple of the sentences needed to go and some grammar needed to shift. So now it doesn't even resemble a sonnet or single sentence. But I think form allows us to enter into a a bit of play, even when the emotional content is heavy, right? It's fun. Poetry's fun. I'm just going to live in the sounds and the S's and the T's and the vowels and the syllables of single sentence sonnet for a good while now. (laughs) One of these years, though, I am going to write a single sentence sonnet and it's going to work as a single. It didn't work as a single sentence sonnet. It was quite bad, I think. But does that answer the Proust question? It answers that one. Who knows what Peter's going to love. Well, Marcel is knocking again and and has a question for you, (laughs) which is what quality do you most like in a poet? I want to say something about those that tiptoe that line of sentimentality, but they're tiptoeing that line with with music that I want to viscerally feel in the body, right? Um, I'm a person who memorizes poems, and I've been thankful because I work at a hospital that we now have masks, uh, so people can't see me mumbling sometimes as, <laughs> as I'm walking because poems get stuck in my head the way uh, songs do as well. But yeah, so I think I most appreciate those who can tiptoe that line of sentimentality. What words or phrases do you most overuse? Uh, I say right too often. Uh, I used to ask my students, what is the phrase I overuse? Or what do I say too often? And a lot of times people will write that the thing that I say too often is, what was I talking about? (laughs) I will go down these rabbit holes that lead to other rabbit holes that sometimes circle back, but other times I got a little lost and I need someone to say corduroy. And then I remember how to get back. Corduroy is my favorite word 
I've never successfully worked it into a poem, but just say corduroy. So if your second book is named corduroy, are the rights holders <laughs> to the children's book about the teddy bear named corduroy going <laughs> present a problem? I mean, the Sedaris Industrial Complex will come after you for uh, corduroy oh as well. <laughs> Peter, what's your favorite word? Oh, well, you you caught me the other day, Patrick, creaturely. And actually, you know, it's a word that I would use to describe without a field guide in an instant. Absolutely. It seems to me totally clear and itself embodied in the language. My favorite word strictly at a phonetic level is unfurled. I find the way the U's work in that word and the way that the word itself unfurls from that tight little first syllable to the to the kind of tongue roll of the rest of the word. So maybe maybe we'll write a collective poem of unfurled creaturely corduroy. But what were we talking about? <laughs> words. It's the words. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending some of your afternoon with us today, Nicole. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been so long inside the poems yourself. It took quite a bit of time, um, but it's, it's fun to, to talk about a little. Awesome. Well, we'll get to talk about them much more when Without a Field Guide comes out spring of 2023 from Unbound Edition Press. We're really excited about it. Thanks for trusting the book to us. Thanks for listening today, everybody. You can find us anywhere great podcasts are available. Apple, Alexa, Amazon Music, or Google. Just search for or ask for Authors Unbound. Unbound.